Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Galatians chapter 5, looking at verse 22. Did Jag go with them? Is that why we're left? Oh, no. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. We've been doing a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And this has been really wonderful for me. I hope it has been for you as well. It's also been very challenging and very humbling and very convicting. But all that is wonderful because that's what the Word of God is meant to be to us, to correct and reprove and encourage and to straighten out. But in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. We've talked about love, and we saw that love is really that self-sacrificing of what is most dear to oneself. And the opposite of love is not really hate, but it is fear. And therefore, the scripture says, perfect love casts out all fear. We fear because we fail to trust God. We we fail to trust his love for us, that he really has our best interests in mind. And so the fruit of the Spirit as love is that supernatural ability that God grants to us by his Spirit. It is from him that enables us to trust the living God no matter what the circumstances, no matter what we may face. Joy is not merely the opposite of unhappiness. Joy is a deep-seated confidence in the faithfulness of God to bring about his intended purposes in our life. The opposite of joy is not really unhappiness. Happiness deals with circumstantial issues. But joy is something much more profound and much deeper that comes supernaturally by the work of the Spirit of God. Really what joy is about is hopefulness. The opposite of joy is really hopelessness, a sense that God really isn't going to bring about his intended will for us, and therefore there is nothing about which we can celebrate or rejoice over. But because we trust God, because God is at work in our lives, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Messiah. There's great joy that God is going to fulfill what he has started in our lives. And therefore we have this sense of hope, not a wish, but a certainty that God's plan and purposes will come to fruition in and through us. And no matter what we may face, we know God has it in control and his perfect will will be forthcoming. That's why it says in Hebrews that Messiah went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. Despite the trial, despite the suffering, despite the anxiety, there is 
great joy. And we talked about peace. Peace is not merely the absence of conflict. Yeshua said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He said prior to that, the peace I leave with you, the peace I give to you is my peace that the world would not understand. It's a supernatural enablement whereby all anxieties are released. What peace has to do with really is a sense of wholesomeness. The Hebrew word shalom, the Greek word uh, uh, irene, means to be whole, to be well, to be uh, wholesome, to be healthy. So the idea is that the anxieties of our world do not overwhelm us and disturb us. And therefore, Paul will say in the book of Colossians, be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to the Lord and the peace of God will guard your hearts. Peace deals with the anxieties that we face. This morning, we have the opportunity to deal with patience. So I have to tell you, this week has been really a struggle for me in getting this message together. I've always felt fairly patient, but moving to California has made me incredibly impatient. And I've got to tell you, driving on the streets of Boston and New York is cake in terms of just pulling out of a driveway anywhere in L.A. Is it just me or do you have the same experience? You're pulling out and you just expect the guy that he sees you're pulling out. He's just going to stop and say, yeah, come on. But it doesn't happen that way here. I just couldn't believe it. And then if you're like on a lane or something and you've got your blinker on for at least five, five miles, right, that you're going to turn, you figure a guy will just slow down, let you in. But it doesn't happen that way here. It happens that way in the East Coast. And so it's just unnerved me. But the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Patience. So I read this story the other day. I was sharing it with... With Gary, it's great to see you guys here, by the way. He's a new grandfather, grandmother, Susie. And of course, Gary being the stuntman that he is, and Susie being the artistic element of things. There was that great photograph with all the colors and stuff where your grandson is sitting on your, standing on your hand. What strong legs for like a one-week-old. <laughs> they actually were holding him up behind the curtain. They were doing their stunt thing, you know. And their magic, you know, illusion kind of stuff. But I was to- told Gary this, and he already knew- read the story himself. But there was a Jewish man that was praying at the Wailing Wall. And he prayed, dear God. And God said, yes. And the man said, how much is a million dollars to you? And God said, oh, a million dollars. A million dollars is like a penny to me. And then the man asked God, well, how much is like a million years to you? He said, a million years, God said to him. It's only like a second. So the man said, can I have a penny? And God said, just wait a second. That was one of the clean ones I could tell. Just wait a second. And that's what patience is about. Just, just waiting, 
waiting a second. But, you know, before we talk about what patience is really all about, there are some passages in Scripture that came to my mind with regard to the danger of impatience. And I'm sure you could think of some of them as well. Consider, for example, Abraham and Sarah. Sarah, right? They were impatient. God had told Abraham, I'm going to multiply your descendants like the stars in heaven, like the sand on the seashore. But Abraham, Sarai, in their impatience, Sarah said, take my handmaiden, Hagar, and have a son. And of course, much of the Arab-Israeli conflict has been the result of their impatience. But then I started thinking more about this in the book of Joshua. You remember when Joshua took the Jewish people out from the wilderness through the Jordan River, took Jericho, very patient, when you think about it, sent the spies to check out what the circumstances were, inquired of the Lord. The Lord told them, look, all I want you to do, all you have to do is march around the city one day, seven day, six days, and then on the last day, seven days, blow the trumpet, shout, and you'll win. Joshua, responding to God's directions, did just that, and the walls come tumbling down. Not too long after that, a group of individuals from Gibeah, the Gibeonites, come to Joshua, and they say, we've traveled a very, very long way. They were just over the hill. But they dressed in like tattered clothes and they had old bread and they had all this stuff to say. We've come from a very long distance and we know that your God is the true God of the universe. And we just want to make a covenant with you. And this passage says very specifically that Joshua did not inquire of the Lord. Rushed into making this covenant with the Gibeonites. And as a consequence made that covenant, and therefore could not remove them from that portion of the land that they inhabited. Now, they became servants to the Israelites, but nevertheless, they couldn't remove them from the land when God told them that they were to get rid of everyone in that promised land. His impatience and haste in not inquiring of the Lord led to his downfall. Consider the spies that went into the promised land. They came into the land to spy it out. Jag, can you check what's happening there? (laughs) Someone's like crashing down our walls, trying to get in, just open the doors. But you remember with the spies, they come into the the promised land. They see all the beauty of the land that God had given to them. And rather than trust God in their impatience, they refused to take the land. What's interesting, it says God became angry with the Israelites. We'll talk about anger in a minute. But God became angry with the Israelites. Then those that had said not to go into the land said, we've done wrong. We have sinned. They apologized. They asked for forgiveness and correction and acceptance. And they said, we're going back in. And of course, when they went back in, they were routed and they were pushed out of the land of Israel and had to travel 40 years, wander in the wilderness before being able to settle down in the land of promise. 
I'm sure there are other examples. These sort of jumped out at me of the dangers of impatience and lack of seeking what God's intentions and will are. But patience is a fruit of the Spirit. The word is macrothumia. Macro means great or large or long. And thumia is the word for suffering. So patience really is the ability to endure suffering for a long time. But it isn't just merely enduring suffering for a long time. That's what the word means. Because there are many people who are forced to suffer for a long time. They don't have any choice in the matter. Born in a certain way or having an accident. And they are going to suffer for a long time. What macrothumia really means is to suffer for a long time without any anger or resentment toward the living God. That's what patience is about. That's not to say anger is a sin. We know that anger is not a sin. Scripture says, be angry and sin not. But the sin not means to deal with the anger so that it would be removed. Patience is the ability to stand up to endure great suffering without the anger having to well up and to take control of us. Scripture speaks often about anger. Let me just show you a few things here about patience as Paul speaks of it. Turn with me. You're in Galatians. Turn with me to uh, Ephesians, the next chapter, next book, and look at chapter 4. In verses 1 and 2, it says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. What's this bearing about? It means dealing with the conflicts that will emerge among you. Bear with them. And look what he goes on to say. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because there is no place where there will not be any conflict in the body of Messiah. There will always be conflict. I mean, Moses had it bad, but pastors have it pretty tough too. And the conflicts are real and they're intense. And therefore he says, look, you need the fruit of the spirit, patience in order to bear up with those conflicts so that the unity of the body is not disrupted and so that peace can prevail. So what is Paul talking about? He's relating patience to bearing up. And what do we bear up with? The conflicts. And what do the conflicts produce? Anger. And what is the result of anger? The loss of unity and peace. In fact, Paul gets even more clear on that. Turn again, two books up, to the book of Colossians. And look at chapter 3. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, look, I love this expression, Clothe yourselves. Wear this stuff. May this stuff characterize you. May this stuff be the things that people see you bearing, wearing, being. So make this your goal of life, he says. And look what he says. 
says, clothe, your, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility. These are fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness and patience. Get this. Bear. Here it is again. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances. Now we know what the bearing deals with. The conflicts. The grievances. And look what he tells us. Forgive them. So that the unity of the bond of peace can be maintained. Notice in Ephesians 4, he says to preserve or keep the peace. It's not something we can create or the unity. It's something God has created, but we are responsible to maintain it and to keep it. Why? Because conflicts are going to emerge. And what will the conflicts do? They will seek to destroy the unity and peace. That's what we need to fight to keep. How do we do that? With patience, long-suffering that does not allow the anger to fester and to remain. But rather that it is dealt with and forgiven, he says in Colossians. So this is, these are powerful words about the nature of patience, for it's a supernatural act of God. If you take a look at 1 Peter... Turning over a few more books through James and then Peter. And you look at chapter 2. In verse 20, he says, How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, there's the patience. This is commendable before God. To this you were called. And look why. Because Messiah himself suffered. And in his suffering, he left us an example that we should follow. Not to commit sin in the midst of our suffering by retaining and holding on to the anger. Not forgiving it, not bearing up under it, and not seeking to deal with it. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He indeed went on to bore, to bear our sins in the body on the tree or the cross. Messiah exhibited great patience under great duress. And rather than retaliate and threaten and get back, he gave his life willingly that we might find salvation and grace in him. Now, I share with you some examples of impatience. Let me share with you some examples of this sort of patience that was exhibited. Consider, first of all, Job. If you turn back from 1 Peter over to James, or I should say forward to James. Am I right? Wrong? Yeah. In James chapter 5, In verse 10, he said, Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. You know, we all look at the prophets and we imagine being one. And we think, what a great lofty assignment and position that would be. But the prophets suffered terribly. You take a man like Isaiah now, I mean... He died somewhere around 750 years before Messiah, somewhere in there. 
But as we look back on him, we say, boy, I wish we, I could have written the words that he wrote. They're so beautiful, so poetic. And that Isaiah 53, you can't beat it. But tradition tells us he was actually placed into the trunk of a tree and sawed in half. And when you think of his assignment, God told him in Isaiah chapter 6, when he says, who will go for me? Who, who will I send? Isaiah stands up and says, Hineni, behold me, here am I. Send me. And he says, okay, but now one other thing I didn't tell you about, and that is the people that I'm sending you to, they're not going to listen to you. And the people that I'm sending you to not only will not listen to you, but they are going to be rebellious against you. Keep in mind, their rebelliousness against you is ultimately a rebelliousness against me. And while they were not listening to you, they're really not listening to me. But all of that is mute. It's not going to be easy. And don't think you're going to have a congregation of 20,000. You're going to have people who are not going to want to even listen to what you have to say. And so James says, consider the patient endurance of the prophets of Israel. Consider a man like Elijah. I mean, again, he gets great press, we might say. But he was a man on the run. And he ran from Jezebel. He did this great thing with the prophets on Mount Carmel. But after that, it's been a, it's a struggle for him. There are high points, to be sure. But we only see a very little glimpse into their entire life. And their lives were lives of suffering. But he doesn't just mention the prophets, of course. He says, as you know, we consider them blessed who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. You know, it's really interesting reading the book of Job because he never gets angry at God. He's always questioning him. Why has this come upon me? Why did I lose my wife? My, well, maybe my wife's okay. My family, my, you know, well, he's, his wife said, curse God and die, you know. Maybe he didn't say that. But you can imagine with Job, he's going through all of this hurt, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all this. Never once does he express anger toward God. He even says, one day in my flesh, I will see God. And at the end, he says, I just repent in ashes and sackcloth. And he didn't do anything to bring about all the harm on him. God was utilizing him as a test case of faithfulness to him as the most righteous man in all the earth. The fruit of the Spirit is patience, bearing up without that anger toward God or others. In fact, we really need to be careful about anger. Because anger is a slippery kind of thing. I say it's slippery because, number one, oftentimes we don't admit to it. We try to sort of restrain it and push it down. I'm not getting angry because if I get angry, that means they really got to me. So I'm just going to push it down. But you know what the book of Hebrews says? He says you need to deal with anger or else a root of bitterness will spring up. And I think it's very interesting. He speaks of it as a root of bitterness because roots are underground. You don't see it. And before you know it, over the years, you've become a bitter person. And you wonder, why did I become this way? 
It's because anger is a root thing that's not easily seen and therefore not easily dealt with. It's not easily seen because for the most part, when we get angry, we feel very justified in our anger. Because either someone has opposed my point of view. I mean, how many times did Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door and I'm there telling me about their faith? And I'm saying, no, 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 this is what the scripture says. This is what the scripture says, you know. And I remember once Mary Lou was at the top of the stairs. She said, you know, if I was Joseph, I wouldn't want anything to do with you, Jesus. Why? Because the theological discussion led into anger. But I thought it was righteous. I mean, I'm holding the fort to orthodoxy. But no, it's a root of bitterness that becomes excused because we feel we're righteous in what we do. And that's the funny thing. Our motives are not clear. It's interesting in Scripture how few experiences we read about of any righteous anger at all. When we read about anger, it's always something you need to deal with and correct because it's assumed not to be righteous. We tend to say it's righteous, but the scripture tends to tell us it's really filled with a lot of unrighteousness that needs to be dealt with. And if you really think about when you get angry, what do you get angry about? There's really two things that cause us to be angry. The one thing is something that we hold dear to, we need to defend at all costs. And therefore, it precipitates in an angry response because we're certain this is the way it is. And it's non-negotiable. It's what we believe. It's what we embrace. And there's no way I'm not going to defend it or I'm going to be changed in my point of view. And so our response is usually an angry thing. Or secondly, it's because we're defending something that is very dear to us or something we feel has been maligned. And in the process, it's really an ego trip. Because the thing we're defending is what we believe. And the thing we are uh, attempting to articulate would raise us up to be emulated and to be acknowledged. In a way, it's a form of idolatry. And therefore, we need to be cautious with it. And so scripture says, Ephesians 4, we'll look at it in a moment. But in Ephesians 4, do not let the sun go down upon your anger means it needs to be dealt with quickly. And it means it needs to be dealt with severely. Because then it will become a root of bitterness and we no longer are angry, but we become an angry person. We no longer have experienced bitterness, but we become a bitter person. And that's the danger of not dealing with anger. Patience is that ability to stand up under long suffering, knowing God's in control of things so that the anger does not fester and does not remain. And so there are some interesting examples of individuals who exhibit this patience. We saw Job, but consider a couple of others. I don't want to, I could bring you through the scripture, but consider these two that strike me. Moses. I mean, yes, there's that moment of anger when he strikes and smashes the rock. Defending God's honor and attempting to destroy those who would stand in God's way. That's what anger oftentimes does. It brings destruction on others. And so he strikes the rock. 
But prior to that, what we find, and there are other instances in his life, but what we find about Moses that's, that is impressive to me, he lived 120 years. And his whole life was lived, 120 years, was lived in the desert. The other day, or a week ago or two now, drove to Phoenix, came through, you know, what is it, Route 10 or something? I don't even remember. Going through into the desert. It's a bleak place. At night, I'd be turning the lights out a little bit to see the stars, turn them back on, turn them off. I'm sure the people driving around me were not too happy with that. But I'll tell you, it is bleak. And I kept thinking, this is not the place I want to get a flat tire. This is not the place I want the battery to run. I just want to get through this to the the next place. But Moses spent 120 years in such places. 40 years he grew up in Egypt, 40 years he was in the land of Midian, 40 years he led the Jewish people, 2 million of them, through the, through the desert. And that was a tough job, 2 million plus complainers, think about that. And what were they complaining about? Isn't it kind of weird? We want to go back to Egypt, where they were slaves for 400 years. And why do they want to go back? They had leeks there, they had onions there, it says. It's like, come on, you know. I mean, the Nile sailing, I got that one. But leeks and onions, I don't know. And they just, they just refused to accept this man who would travel with them for 40 years, leading them, the man that is most like Messiah, prophet like unto me, the one that God said, I speak with Moses, not like anyone else, but I speak with him face to face. And they just rebelled against this man. What patience he exhibited in the face of such consternation. Another man that comes to my mind is David. You know, more is written about David than any other character in all the Bible except Yeshua. But did you realize, I'm sure you did, but did you realize that before David becomes king, he has to be anointed not once, twice, but three times? I mean, wouldn't you think once should be enough? He's anointed king. But read the text. It's very fascinating. First Samuel 16, Solomon, excuse me, Samuel is sent to Jesse's household to anoint one of his sons. He takes the oldest. And God says, no, it's not him. He takes the strongest. God says, no, it's not him. He takes the prettiest. He says, no, it's not him. He goes through all of them. Seven sons, eight sons. I forget how many. And then he says, there's got to be another son around. Jesse says, no, that's all. Of, oh, yeah, there is one more. His own father doesn't even think about him. He says, there's one more, but he, where is he? Oh, he's with, the, he's with the goats and the sheep. Can't be him. Forget about him. He says, well, it's not any of these, so call him. And he calls him, and Samuel, you read it, anoints him king over Israel. Even while Saul is king. And the rest of the book of Samuel, he just runs from Saul. The whole book is him running from one place to the other as Saul comes after him. And he's been anointed king. Finally, Saul dies in battle. And David with his mighty men head up over, about 30 of them head over to Hebron. And they anoint him king over Judah. But he's still not king yet. He then marches his men up to Jerusalem, the fortress of the Jebusites, takes the fortress, 
And now the people of Israel north of Judah, they all come down to celebrate. And they say, we accept you as king over Israel. And he's anointed a third time. Now he's king. But it's only five chapters later or so that Absalom rises up in defiance. And he's off the throne again. You know, David spent more time on the run than he did on the throne. Never does he express any anger to God over this. You've anointed me king, God, once, twice, three times, and I still can't sit on the throne. What patience and forbearance under great suffering without any anger toward God. And so let me turn our attention then to, and of course I could t- we could look at Messiah. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us of his own forbearance and then challenges us to do the same in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, if you're going to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit known as patience, long-suffering without anger toward God and others, Paul tells us how to deal with it. By the way, the scriptures does say anger is not a sin. The scripture does say God gets angry. There are different words in the Greek, by the way, for anger. Tumas is the word for explosion, which is where we get the word rage from. Always destructive, looking to harm. And the other word is orge, which is an organized or a a sense of settled opposition to something. When the scripture speaks about God getting angry, here's an interesting thing. You will never read of him losing his temper. He'll be angry, but he doesn't lose his temper. And he brings judgment on the wrongdoing. Of course, God is always right in his analysis. But we never are. We're always a mixed bag because of our sense of motives. But take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. He says, in your anger, do not sin. So anger in and of itself is not sin, but it can become sin when it festers, when it morphs into bitterness, when it seeks to destroy and to harm. And so he says, in your anger, do not sin. So the first thing I think one needs to do is to admit that they are angry. You have to be honest about how one feels at a given moment. And so there needs to be an admittance of our anger. Secondly, look what he says. But do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. So the second thing is, we need to deal with it quickly. It doesn't have to be within that day, I suppose. But it means quickly. It can't be allowed to fester and hang there. It has to be dealt with. And in being dealt with, that means it needs to be analyzed. It needs to be reflected upon. It needs to be understood. We need to ask ourselves, what is it that I am not willing to negotiate or give up on? What is it I am unwilling not to defend? Maybe we ought not to defend some things that we feel committed to defending. And so we have to be reflective on what's really going on inside. We need to ask ourselves, what do we want to destroy? Because that's what anger is about. It's explosive and it seeks to harm. So we have to be honest in our understanding of what we are admitting to. We admit we're angry, now we need to understand why it is. 
What is it we will not give up? And ultimately, everything has to be willing to be given up to the sovereign God who does all things right. If you're not willing to give something up, you can never deal with your anger. Anger requires a giving up, a surrender of our non-negotiable. I will always be angry with God because of what he has done to me because I have these rebellious children who will not walk in the ways of God. They've caused me so much heartache. Why did God allow this to me? I will not give up on that. Somehow we have to learn to say God is in control. God is sovereign. I'm not going to remain angry at him for that. If you can't, if you're unwilling to put it before the cross and leave it with him, you will never get rid of anger. We will never get rid of our bitterness. We will become angry, bitter people. And that's why he says it must be dealt with quickly before the sun sets. And then look what he goes on to say. Verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness. These are all the phrases that deal with anger. Remember dealing with patience, which enables us to do this. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, which leads to brawling and slander and malice. And here it is. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other. So the third thing is the need to forgive. The need to forgive. Now I've heard people say this and I, I will defend this. It's a non-negotiable. <laughs> no. I've heard people say you don't have to forgive if a person doesn't repent. I do not believe that. <laughs> it's a non-negotiable. <laughs> I believe that forgiveness can occur by simply relinquishing whatever it is into the hands of God. That's why Messiah could say on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Forgiveness does not depend upon others. It is solely dependent upon your submission to a forgiving God. Amen. And this is why... It says, if we do not forgive, we ought not to expect God to forgive us. That's why the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts even as we forgive others. In my view, there is never cause not to forgive. That's not to say people will not bear the consequences of their wrongdoing if they have wronged us. I'm not saying that. We we don't need any prisons. But what I'm saying is we cannot hold on to in blaming God for the hard place we are experiencing. We are long sufferers. We are patient individuals because of the work of the Spirit of God. Even while we were enemies of God, God was patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Every one of us, the moment we were born, deserved to be snuffed out because we were born in sin. We didn't have to do anything. We were already sinners, and therefore a just God could have just said, you are to be judged for your lostness, your state of lostness. But God is not like that. He is merciful and kind and abounding in grace. And therefore he is patient. He's long-suffering. 
Why is it that Messiah has not yet returned? Because he is patient and long-suffering. He endures the wrongdoings that the universe has committed over the course of however long we've existed. And yet his love still prevails upon us. So Paul says, we are to forgive one another. We need to admit, we need to acknowledge and understand what's going on, and then we need to forgive that we could walk faithfully before God. So I was reading a sermon by John Piper, and he used, uh, he made reference to the experience of Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon is a marvelous commentator who's written voluminously uh, on the Lord. And he was pastor in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, from 1782 to 1836. He served at Trinity Church in Cambridge. And he was appointed to his church by a bishop against the will of the people of that church. Anglican Church operates differently. The congregation doesn't vote on it. The bishop appoints a pastor, and he appointed Charles Simeon in 1782. The people opposed him because he believed the Bible was the word of God. And he, they knew that he, call, he would call people to conversion, to turn from their sin and acknowledge the Lord. And he uh, promoted holy, holy living, and he encouraged missions. So he was just a straightforward, orthodox kind of guy. They didn't want him because of this. So for 12, think about this now. I mean, I can think about this. For 12 years, the people of that church refused, refused to allow him to preach Sunday afternoon sermons. It was traditional back in the day. You'd have morning, afternoon, evening. And for 12 years, they said, you're not preaching in the afternoon, so forget it. 12 years, he endured that. And the congregation boycotted him. Now, in the 1700s, if you go to Boston, you can go into like the old North Church, one if by land, two if by sea, where, you know, all, and you go into the church. And many churches from that era in Boston, you'll see you come in and they have uh, gated pews. So the pews are all, you know, uh, cubicles. And they'd have doors in which you would come into this section. It would be a squared out section. And during the winter, you know, they'd, they'd have like these little heaters. You bring your coal, turn it on. And then, you know, the wealthier people had bigger heaters and bigger room for bigger families and so on. And closer to the... Because, you know, in those days, sir, a service would last three, four hours. You know, the guys would preach for a long time. So you wanted to stay warm. And so they had these, uh, these cubicles. And each cubicle would have benches around them. And so you could sit maybe seven, eight people in there or something. And uh, everybody had their own section. And you go into some of these churches, you'll see their names. People's names are still on there. When he came in to preach... The members of that congregation boycotted him. They locked the gates to their pews. So if anybody wanted to come in, they couldn't sit in the pews. They had to stand or sit in the aisles. They did this to him for 12 years. So for 12 years, 
He would preach to empty, think about it here, empty pews and people just hanging in the aisles for 12 years. When he was asked, how did he do this? This is what he wrote. In this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. Isn't that interesting, the the connections between these two things, faith and patience? The passage, and here's the word of God. Here, you know, this is the key to it all, you know. I mean, there's no tricks. There's no three stages to patience. It's all about trusting God, reading his word, like the psalmist, reminding ourselves what the word says and trusting it. That's what life is about. There's no tricks to this thing. You go one day to the next day reading the word, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it better the next day. Better, th- I'm going to keep doing this. That's what it means to walk in the ways of the Spirit of God. You know, there's no five simple steps to any of this. So he said, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. The passage of Scripture which subdued and controlled my mind was this. The servant of the Lord must not strive. It was painful indeed. To see the church, with the exception of the aisles, almost forsaken. But I thought that if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would on the whole be as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited to only half the amount. Don't you love that? You know, I just pray there'd be a double blessing on those who come because that would be equivalent to if all the people came and they got a half blessing. I love the guy's math. This comforted me many, many times when without such a reflection, there it is reminding ourselves, God is in control. The blessing is his. Whatever will be, will be. And so he says, this comforted me many, many times when without such a reflection, I would have sunk under my burden. He ended up staying at that church for 52 years. And it was in October 1836 that he was dying. And on his deathbed, he said this, Infinite wisdom has arranged the whole with infinite love. And infinite power enables me to rest upon that love. I am in a dear father's hand. All is secure. When I look to him, I see nothing but faithfulness and immutability, unchangeableness, and truth. And I have the sweetest peace. I cannot have more peace. Is that not thrilling? You know? I mean, that is a man of God. And so let me share with you some words of encouragement as we close. Isaiah writes, Isaiah 40, I'm reading verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, those who wait in the Lord, patience, will renew their strength. 
They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will faint, uh, excuse me, they will walk and not be faint. In Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 50. I won't find that. But in Isaiah 64, since ancient times, no one has heard nor ear has perceived. No eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. That's what the fruit of the Spirit patience is. It's a waiting on God without the anger having to overwhelm us, overtake us, or embitter us. And the hope that he does all things right and we'll see it to the end. Father in heaven, and if the ushers can come forward. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us this day. We're thankful for your word. It's so rich and filling and fulling. And so, Lord, we are thankful for your message to us this day. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to endure suffering over a long period of time, if so be it, without an animosity or an anger toward you or anyone else. You who do all things right. You who have laid down your life for us. You who have forgiven us unimaginable sin. Father, may we find our rest and hope in you. Enable the fruit of the Spirit known as patience to well up within us and to enable us to rest and wait on you. And now, Lord, we thank you for your kindness and goodness to us. Thank you for providing us with the resources that we have. And we are grateful for each and every one who gives this day to the work here at Beth Ariel. May thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.